highly, highly practical. It was all about that word up there on the screen, simplify. It was all about making your life simple, simplifying life, simplifying prayer, simplifying uh, your possessions, simplifying your purpose, which is timely, right? It's timely because simplifying is on trend these days, right? You go to Amazon and you Google books on how to simplify your life, you will get over 3,000 titles on how to simplify your life. Titles like 100 Ways to Simplify Your Life, or this book's a little bit better than that one, 101 Ways to Simplify Your Life, or if you wanna get the best book on simplifying your life, it's called 365 Ways to Simplify Your Life Now. All right, now. See, but um, when Jesus preached about keeping it simple, he actually just kept it simple. He didn't mess around. But it was the first century, right? I mean, the first century, how complicated was life back then, really? I mean, how much did people really have to simplify? Hey, Bob, what are you doing today? Oh, I thought I might do a little fishing while my wife walks down to the well and gets some water. And then when she comes back, we're gonna go to the markets. We need a few new, uh, new rocks so we can wash our clothes today. I mean, that's, right, that's about it, right? How stressful was it really for people back then? Well, life back then, First century was actually made very, very complicated by a group of guys who were the religious leaders of the people, the Pharisees. And they made life so complicated. They were not simplifiers, they were complicators. And they expanded God's simple 10 commandments to 613 commandments. And these 613 regulations, everybody had to memorize and everybody had to know them and everybody had to live by them. Then they added 1,521 amendments to those 613 regulations so that you really know how to live by them and not cross the line. For instance, on the Sabbath, on the Sabbath, women were not allowed to look in the mirror. Not at all, that was forbidden. It was against the spiritual rules because if you looked in the mirror and then you happen to see a gray hair, you're gonna be tempted to wanna pluck out that gray hair. And if you start to move towards that gray hair to pluck it out, well, that's work. And you don't work on the Sabbath, so no looking at mirrors for women on the Sabbath. Another example, you could swallow liquid, but you can't gargle. No gargling liquid, because it's against religious rules. Swallowing, what you gotta do to stay alive? Gargling, that's work, right? You gotta take an effort, and it makes a little effort, so no gargling. See, that's the kind of stuff everybody had to deal with back then. Life was so complicated. Over 2,000 rules and amendments you had to follow so that you could become spiritual enough to enter into the presence and the kingdom of God. How do you think they felt? How's the pressure that you're living with? I mean, I'm so glad, I'm so glad we don't have to worry about those kind of non-written down church rules these days, right? That we don't have to worry about rules like, be careful what kind of car you drive or people might think you're pretentious. Uh, Rules like, um, it's obvious that all church people need to vote the same way here in New Zealand, but don't talk about it. Just wait for that Christian organization to tell you to vote for, and if you see someone that is voting differently, well, they need Jesus, right? I mean, that's, we don't talk about that kind of stuff. Uh, rules like know when and how high to raise your hands when we sing worship. 
too high and you look too pinty, too low and you look spiritual enough, not at all, and you're probably the most spiritual person in that Baptist church. That's right, unwritten rules, right? Some sins are really, really bad. Other sins, ah, they're hardly sins at all, really. You know, they're hardly sins at all. Your job is to know which is which and when and when not to talk about it or post about it or, heaven forbid, ask any questions about it. I'm so glad we don't have unwritten rules in church that makes life complicated in following Jesus. See, here's the problem. Here's the problem with these kind of spoken and unspoken religious rules. How many of you here remember playing a sport with someone who was like 10 times better than you in that sport, all right? You play with them one-on-one. It might be golf or basketball or table tennis or Mario Kart, Mario Kart, whatever. What happens? As you play and this person is just wiping the floor with you, you hate it, right? You hate it. And you think, I'm never gonna play this game ever again. They raise the bar so high, you just wanna quit. you like, why even try? And then if they rub your face in it, and they parade around like they're the band, and they delight in your non-skill, and delight in your clumsiness, and, and delight the fact that you just look like an idiot playing against them, what happens? Well, you feel like an idiot. That feeling you're remembering right now? You know, those school playground memories that just can't ever be erased? That's what religion was like for people back in Jesus' day. See, the Pharisees with over 2,000 rules and amendments and commands, they put the spiritual bar so high, so high, that the average person on the street would say, man, those religious Guys, they are out of my league. They are out of my league. I can never compete with that. I can never keep up with that. I mean, I would start, but man, I would quit so fast, so why even bother starting? So what's happening is, these entitled, religious, elitist type of Pharisees took delight in the whole situation, and they would literally parade around and sanctimoniously just kind of look at every public situation possible as a way to say, in your face, you're not as holy as we are, you're out of my league, you can't touch this, and it was hammer time, every time, with with the Pharisees. That's what a shame-based, legalistic, religious system produces. People who think they're better than others, and everybody else knowing they're not even close. So why even try? That's why people who grow up in very, very strict, kind of hyper-fundamentalist Christian churches, they rarely keep their faith, rarely. They grow up thinking they're doomed to go to hell because that's what they've been told their whole life. They're told so many times that what's wrong with them that they finally decide that I'm just wrong. So why even try? And that's who Jesus is talking to in the Sermon on the Mount. That's how most of the people that gather for this message, that's how they were feeling. According to the Pharisees, God must make me perfect. He, uh, he, he has to have me behave perfectly in all things, and I can't do it, so I can have nothing to do with God. And in the midst of that cultural backdrop, Jesus enters, and he walks in. And he's a mystery. 
I mean, he's like 30 years old, right? He's 30 years old. He comes from this small town that nothing good comes from in the north part of the country that no one really knows much about. And he comes from a very common, very common family. And yet strange things happen when he's around. Everywhere he goes, even before he starts speaking and preaching and teaching, healings pop up. He leaves this trail behind him of blind who now see and lame who now walk. And he's not just healing, you know, back aches and stomach aches. These are verifiable, goose-making, unbelievable events. People with leprosy, skin rotting off of their body, he would touch them, and the Bible says the skin would just re create itself in front of their very eyes and they would be restored back to like a baby's hand. So people were talking about this Jesus of Nazareth. And there was more talking and more stirring and more curiosity about this Jesus of Nazareth than anybody else on the planet at that time. And people were going, who is this guy? I mean, really, who is this guy? And word gets out that he's gonna go public, and he's gonna get up, and he's gonna give a thorough explanation about what he's about, and what his teaching is all about, and what it means to connect with God. And the, people, uh, the Bible says that there was so much anticipation, so many people so curious about what is going on, that multitudes, which means thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people, showed up to hear this talk that we call Sermon on the Mount. And they show up on this little hillside outside of Capernaum, and they sit down with their blankets and their chili bins, and they're like, okay, let's see what's gonna happen. What's he gonna do? What's this Jesus all about? Now remember, they come there, they sit down, and the only religious system that this crowd is familiar with is an unattainable, shame-producing, back-breaking load of rules and reminders that you're not good enough. And the murmur and the crowd is this Jesus. Some are saying he's the son of God. Oh no, can you imagine the rules he's gonna bring? We're really not gonna live up to this guy. So they're sitting there, they're talking. What's he gonna say, what's this all about? Most of the people really, really wanna get to the kingdom of God, but they know they don't have a shot. And Jesus arrives, he sits down, he clears his throat, and a hush falls over the crowd, and he looks them for just a moment, and he says this word, blessed. First words out of his mouth, recorded in Matthew chapter five, verse two, he says, blessed. The greatest sermon in the history of all humankind starts with the word of blessing. See, the Greek word that he used is makarios, It means happiness, happiness. But it's a special kind of happiness. It's a happiness that the Greeks used to describe the kind of bliss only enjoyed by the Greek gods. A divine kind of bliss, a a perfect serenity, and an ideal happiness. Because the Greek gods had everything they ever wanted, and they were strong and beautiful and perfect, and they existed in this unbelievable state of well-being and satisfaction, true, lasting, divine bliss. And Jesus says, that's you. Blessed. Now, that first word, people have got to be going, what? 
wow, okay, this has gone somewhere I didn't see going. All right, this is sounding way different from anything the Pharisees ever said to me. And he says it nine times. Blessed, 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 blessed. You are divine bliss, he says. You have perfect happiness coming your way. Now, these people have endured a lifetime of negative verbal assaults in the name of religion by the Pharisees directed at them. And this is already like, wow, have we just died and gone to heaven? We've been here like 30 seconds, and he's saying this about me? See, this serene kind of lasting happiness is a different kind of happy. The first eight sentences of Jesus' talk shows you how you can have makarios. You can be happy, but it's different. It's so different from anything you've ever experienced and any, so different from any way you think you're going to get it. And he starts showing and telling the people to how to get used to different. Because my God and my Father, God in heaven, he says, meant something different for all of us. And he starts giving these very surprising characteristics, kind of counterintuitive characteristics of what these type of very happy people are like. And first he says, to have this kind of happiness, you need an attitude of weakness. You gotta be weak. Not an attitude of pride. Not an attitude of strength. Not an attitude of, man, I've already heard this. I already know this. I already know what to do. I've done this. Been there. Done it already. Nah, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this poor in spirit, what's this about? Um, there were two groups of people sitting in this crowd on this, on this mount, right? There was a group of people who were rich. They were rich in spirit, and they're the Pharisees. And they considered themselves rich. They knew they were rich. They were rich in spiritual knowledge. They were rich in spiritual ability. Uh, they were rich uh, because they had been members of that synagogue for decades. Uh, they were rich in their capability to raise the spiritual bar higher and higher and higher and get over it every single time. They didn't need anything, and they certainly didn't need this Jesus guy who thinks he's the Messiah. But then there was another group. And this other group of people represented on that crowd, on that hillside, they were poor, very poor in spirit. They felt spiritually and morally bankrupt. They were people in the eyes of the Pharisees who were seen as failures. They were failures. They, uh, these people knew they were not members of the spiritual elite. They knew they were never gonna set any righteous kind of records. They knew they were not impressive spiritually, morally, ethically. There were people in the crowd that day who just kind of hung their heads down, really looked up, looked at their feet all the time, in shame, realizing their spiritual net worth was like zero. And it was to those people that Jesus talks directly to this first sentence, divine favor, he says, bliss is coming to those of you today who feel spiritually bankrupt and worthless. And they're like, what? My whole life, all I heard from the Pharisees is here's a hoop, jump through it, and I can never make it. And he says, you feel spiritually worthless? You feel spiritually bankrupt? Well, God's bliss is coming your way. See, can you imagine the impact 
of his very first beatitude on all those people in that crowd. He has their attention. And for the first time in their lives, they're like, is it possible? Is it, I mean, is it possible? Is it really possible that the doors of the kingdom are gonna be open for someone like me? Really? Is it possible that with all the junk in my life that God loves me? And he just says that and he doesn't stop. Then he says this next phrase. Then he says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Now, this word mourn, he used the strongest Greek word possible to convey lamenting, but lamenting over a wrong. Lamenting over a wrong that you've done or lamenting over a wrong that's been done to you. Ever feel like you failed God over and over and over again? I keep praying I'm sorry about the same sin over and over. I'm so sick and tired of my behavior. And you keep blowing it and blowing it and blowing it. And in your head, you just keep saying, stupid, stupid, stupid. And you feel, God must be so embarrassed by me. He will never want anything. He's not going to bless my life. I've let him down so many times. That's the word. That's mourn. That's lamenting. You're mourning over your wrong, your wrong decision, your wrong habit, your wrong behavior. And Jesus says, perfect, perfect. Now you're desperate enough to want me. You're desperate enough to want God. Come on in. The doors to the kingdom are open. And he goes on, and then he says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, meek, what's meek? Meek is the opposite of proud. Jesus is saying, get rid of all the pride that keeps you from realizing how messed up you are and how badly you need Jesus. See, if the majority of your dinner conversation is around topics of, you know, them, you know, them, you know, the ones that believe differently from you. You know, the ones that always have to talk Maori. You know, the ones that, you know, like that couple that's always fighting next door, or that single mom that is just so young, so young, or that person who isn't married yet. What's wrong with them? See, if your conversations around dinner table about that kind of stuff, you're looking just like the Pharisees did to the people back then. It's that sense of pride. I don't need help. They need help. Boy, and they need help. But I don't need help. And we're too proud to admit that, man, actually the issue here is I need Jesus. I need to be more like him. I need to be more full of God's spirit. But there's the meek that we're sitting on that mount. And they're going, I am so messed up. How in the world could God ever love me? This is the problem. See, we Christians can easily think that God wants us to act perfectly, or therefore we at least pretend to act perfectly. But God wants us to admit the opposite. And God just says, look, just admit you're not. Just admit you're not perfect. But for some reason, we find that so hard. And the longer you're church, the longer and harder it gets to do. Uh, it's, it's really not that bad. Really, what I say, it's really not that bad. I, I don't gossip, I don't gossip. I just tell certain people certain things that they need to know. 
Um, look, I, I, I'm not a cheater. I, mean, I, cheated, I cheated once, but I'm not, you know, I, I'm, I'm not that bad. I, I'm not like the other people. I mean, I don't inhale. I never inhaled. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, I delete my search history, so I'm fine. Um, look, I'm not that bad. Really, I'm not that bad. And Jesus is saying, you know what? You spend so much energy trying to convince yourself and everybody else that you're not that bad. You know what? I just need you to admit, yeah, you are that bad. You're just like everybody else. You're just a sinner in need of a savior, just like everybody is. Now, let me say something kind of pointed before I get to the next point. Um, There might be a few of us here that are squirming a bit right now. And God's whispering in your ear, did you hear that? Did 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 you hear that? And right now you're feeling so bad about yourself, you're wondering whether why did I even show up this morning? And, and, and do I even belong here? What I want to ask you to do is for the rest of the morning, listen to Jesus' voice more than you listen to your own right now. Because he has good news for you. It's only good news. And the doors to forgiveness and the doors to new life and the doors to no shame. And peace and rest enjoy they're open wide to all of you and Jesus is saying come on in just come on in then he highlights a second second characteristic that Jesus says that people who find real lasting happiness well they have an appetite for holiness for holiness now this is a difficult one because we live in a country, we live in a society that you get rewarded for owning it. Like, you get rewarded for owning it. And, and you get like, you know what, I am what I am. What you see is what you get. I, I know I can't be trusted. It's just who I am. Uh, I, I know I got a drinking problem. It's just who I am. Um, I, know, I know I'm a dirt bag, but, you know, I own it. I am what I am. I have no pretense. I'm real. I'm authentic. And Jesus says, don't just stop at an attitude of weakness. Take the next step and seek something better. Seek purity. Replace it with something better. Be different, Jesus says. Have an appetite for holiness. Crave, crave purity. Long for innocence. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled Crave it, crave righteousness. And then I'll just do the rest, he says. You crave righteousness, I'll do the rest. That's his point. See, the Pharisees didn't crave righteousness. They were filled. They weren't hungry. I mean, I'm as righteous as you can get. I'm self-satisfied. And Jesus is saying, come to my table. There is a feast here for you. And the Pharisees are like, oh, no, thank you. <laughs> Couldn't eat another bite, really. Oh, thank you very much. And just, nah, see, they weren't hungry. But there were people on that mount listening to the sermon and they were hungry and they wanted God and they didn't know how to find him. And they didn't know how to get there. And Jesus says, you know, you know, if you're hungry, I will fill it. If you crave it, I will quench it. And then he says, blessed are the pure. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Now the key phrase in this is in heart, in heart. the, uh, the Pharisees didn't worry about what was inside. They worried about the outside. Look 
holy, look righteous. But Jesus was cared about what was inside. You ever struggle with this? Ever struggle with this whole pure in heart thing? Uh, There's a fascinating book that I came across in preparing for this by a French writer by the name of Francois Moloch or something like that. And, And he talks about his struggle, his struggle with purity, especially in the area of lust. And he really struggled with this. I mean, he really struggled with this. And he's a Christian. And he writes a book about his, his journey to overcome it. And he used all the usual motives. Like, I know what I'll do. I'm a Christian. I struggle with lust. I'll get married. I'll get married, and then I'll cure my lust. It didn't. So then he goes, okay, i got to be more disciplined. And he had really strict self-disciplined things around him to cure his lust. It didn't. So then he kept looking his whole life for a motivator to keep him pure in heart. And he stumbled onto this beatitude. And for him, this was the game changer. Blessed are the pure in, high, in heart. Why? Because they will see God. See, when you're pure in heart, your soul sees God in everything. You're aware of God in everything around you. We've all felt that connection. Sometimes it's through worship, sometimes it's through prayer, sometimes it's talking to uh, 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 someone desperate to meet Jesus. Well, Francois Moloch, or however you say his name, found his motivator in, was in craving holiness. In craving to be pure, he could see God. He realized he was limiting his sense of intimacy with God because he actually didn't really want it. And he had to decide to want it. And once he wanted it, it happened. Finding yourself always angry doesn't seem to matter who it is or what it's about, you're always angry. Find yourself kinda, your thoughts drifting into areas that you wouldn't want anybody else to know what you were thinking about. Finding yourself always wanting what others have and telling yourselves, man, I deserve that. Jesus says, you wanna get rid of that stuff and be pure in heart? Start with your heart and want it. Crave intimacy with God and you'll be filled. That's it. You want it, God will do it. If you want God, he will make himself known to you, and you will be different. See, the next characteristic that Jesus speaks about, people that are filled with a different kind of happy, is then have an ambition to forgive. Ambition to forgive. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Simply start showing other people the mercy that God shows you. Now, let me say something really kind of direct. Some of you don't do this. Some of us here do not do this. In fact, some of us collect grudges. It's like a hobby. And, and you can name every time someone let you down, and you can name every time somebody hurt you or said something hurtful or said something about you or disrespected you or slighted you in any kind of way, and you hang on to that, and you bring it up every chance you can, because I've heard about all of them multiple times. And Jesus says, mate, clean the house. He says, just clean your house if you want to be happy. And then he goes on, and then be a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers, not a peace wanter. He says, you go out and make peace. You go out and you uh, be the first in the disagreement to forgive. You practice aggressive forgiveness is what he's saying here. You don't just wait until they're sorry. You say sorry up front. You start it. If they don't come back with a sorry, not your problem. 
but you own your stuff and you go forward. If you want a different kind of happy, a deeper kind of divine kind of bliss, this is what you do. You have an attitude of weakness. You have an appetite for holiness. You have an ambition to be a peacemaker and an aggressive forgiver. And then Jesus says, here's the big one. You seek my approval, not people's. Seek the approval of God, not people. See, so much energy is wasted on the dead end of trying to please everybody else and get everyone else's approval. And, and I, I gotta get them to like me. I gotta get them to like me. And at the very minimum, they need to like me enough so that they will abuse and gossip and get angry at everybody else instead of me. And it's a strategy. And Jesus says, man, living with that kind of desire for that kind of approval is a guarantee you will never be happy. But it's also a guarantee that you will live always on your guard. Because the approval of people changes. It's fickle. They approve you one minute, next minute they don't. In fact, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, uh, persecute you falsely, say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He says, look, in order for you to be really happy, you gotta have this kind of attitude that, look, I don't have to be popular. I don't have to be liked. I think he goes as far as saying, you actually have to have a, a bit of an attitude of, I don't even have to survive. And then he goes on and says, rejoice then. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He says, there's gonna be trouble. There's gonna be trouble, guaranteed. I don't know if you catch, have caught on to the song in our little intro video every time we do a sermon on this topic of Get Used to Be Different. In that video, there's a song playing in the background and the words like this. They go, throw me like a stone in the water. Watch the mud rise up. Dress me like a lamb for the slaughter. Pour me in your cup. Should have known we'd bring trouble. Trouble gonna find you there. Trouble. Because of what happens when you live for Jesus. But with that trouble also comes reward. Guaranteed. Now, all these Beatitudes, the beginning of the greatest sermon ever preached, there are echoes of this beatitude throughout our society. Of all the 12-step programs are based on the beatitudes. Admit you're spiritually bankrupt, admit you're powerless, learn to make amends. Why? Because there's a reality to this. There is a, a psychological and a sociological, a relational reality to this. Because when you live like this, like those beatitudes, you will be happier. You will be blessed. But when you don't, you will not be happy. It's just kind of a life fact. Be desperate to get rid of the stuff in your life that keeps you from God, and then be desperate to fill that void with stuff that connects you to God, and you experience a different kind of happy. In fact, if you look at all the Beatitudes, they could be summarized in one thing. Blessed are the desperate. Because when you are desperate for God, man, he reaches down and he blesses you. Because that's when you want God to reach down and you want to reach up. 
and you want to be aware of God working in your life. And he wants to be wanted by you. That's the point of worship. God wants to be wanted by you. What I'm going to ask you to do is listen to the Beatitudes again, but we're going to do it in a few different ways. So Rachel and Jonathan, please come, come on up. I've asked Rachel and Jonathan to help out, and we're going to read the Beatitudes in some different wording. I'll start. I'll start with the first uh, part of the Beatitudes right from the Bible, and then Rachel's going to read a version of it, and then Jonathan's going to read a version of it. As they read this, just close your eyes and let God whisper. Let God say, did you hear that? Did you hear that? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are lowly, beaten down, and disadvantaged in this world. Blessed are the poor, not the penniless, but whose heart is free. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who have no hope in this world and who see the brokenness of this world. Blessed are those who mourn, not those who whimper, but those who raise their voices. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who don't push back and who don't strive, cheat and scheme to succeed in this world. Blessed are the meek, not the soft, but those who are patient and tolerant. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who want more for this world, who want justice and mercy and kindness and truth in this world. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, not, for those, not those who whine, but those who struggle. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are those who are not eager to condemn the people of this world, who assume the best, seek to understand, and are quick to forgive. Blessed are the merciful, not those who forget, but those who forgive. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the people who have not been corrupted by this world, who can still see beauty, and whose hearts incline toward that which is right, loving, and good. Blessed are the pure in heart, not those who act like angels, but those whose life is transparent. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who seek reconciliation between God and people and between friends and neighbors. Blessed are the peacemakers, not those who shun conflict, but those who face it squarely. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who will push through some suffering and bear a little shame in order to pursue the kingdom of God on earth for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for justice, not because they suffer, but because they love. Thank you. Thanks. Jesus tells a story that kind of 
encapsulates everything that he says in the Sermon on the Mount. He tells a story about these two guys who go to a temple to pray, and the first guy stands up, he's a Pharisee, and he gets up, and it's a big song and dance. And he puts out, he goes, I'm so glad I'm not like those other people. I'm not like the robbers and the cheats and the swindlers. I'm so glad that I'm not even like this poor schmuck over here who's trying to pray over here. In fact, God, thank you for making me not like them. In fact, God, you should probably thank me for how much time I spend with you. And then he says, there's another guy who's standing off to a distance, wouldn't even raise his eyes up to heaven, let alone raise a hand. And Jesus says, he said one sentence. He said, God, have mercy on me. I'm such a sinner. And Jesus says, be the second guy. Because when you're desperate for God, all heaven breaks loose. So I just want to finish our time together by giving you a chance to spend time with God. Express that to God right now, to be that second guy right now. So I'm gonna ask you to just close your eyes and that you pray in your own. And the band's gonna start praying pretty soon. And just pray in your own, because blessed are the desperate. If you've been too prideful to crave God, start craving God today. You've been too busy, too self-sufficient to want God. You're struggling with a pure heart. This is a chance for you to talk to him about that now. Simply ask the Spirit to help you crave God again. Crave him in your life, crave him in your marriage, crave him in your family, crave God for our church, crave God for your neighborhood. Take some time and pray while we sing. And then when you're done praying one-on-one between you and God, if you wanna pray with a human, There'll be a few of us up front while we sing. While we sing. It's not a counseling session. We're not going to chat. Just come up and say, pray for me about. And we would love to pray for you. There'll be some of our pastoral staff, our elders, a couple of life group leaders want to come up. Just be available while we sing. If you want to pray with someone, you're just kind of taking that step forward and saying, I'm craving starting today. Take some time. You and God. Pray as we finish with the time of worship.
to a virgin came the word from a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the
Blessed are the desperate. Our only job as followers of Jesus is to be desperate for God. Desperate for God in our lives. Desperate for God in our marriage, in our, in our families, in our schools, in our work. Desperate for God in our church, in our neighborhood, in our city. We do that. He does everything else. Simplify. 
My prayer is that we'll be a church that's just desperate, desperate to see God be and do what he does. When you came in, you were given this kind of little bookmark where you can slide into chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew during the series. God doesn't make himself hard to find. He's always with you. And these are just a collection of verses that will just remind you that he's right there when you're hurting, when you're struggling, when you feel alone, when you're afraid, when you're feeling dead in your sin, when you don't know what to do. Because Emmanuel, Jesus is with us. God is with us. Just as a reminder. So Father God, make us desperate. Holy Spirit, remind us that we don't have it all together. You do. Our job is that you be God, not us. Our job is to follow you to be desperate for you to work in our kids' lives and in our marriages, in our hearts, in our neighborhoods, our church, our schools. And for us to thank you and be amazed and wowed by how blessed we actually are. Thank you for your love. That is so extravagant through your son, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. I'll be praying for us as we take some daily time with God over this time. And remember, guys, pull out that worst joke you can think of. Please go get filmed. I want to see it next Sunday. God bless you and see you next weekend.